Hebrews chapter 8. I wonder if you had in your family a foosball table. Maybe you're not familiar with a foosball table, but it's basically soccer. And uh, you turn those handles and you try to kick the ball into the other guy's goal. And I wonder if you had one of those in your home. And your kids grew up playing foosball. Uh, If that is what they would understand soccer to be, having never ever seen the real game of soccer. Now I know soccer, you know, it's not as much of an American sport as it is an international sport there. And I I think perhaps the illustration might be lost on folks who maybe might not know a lot about soccer. But if you can get this, this idea here. Imagine your kids grew up playing foosball. Knew nothing else but playing foosball. And they would get on either side of that table, and, and the red team would be against the blue team, and they'd try hitting that ball into the goal there as they turn the handles. And that's, that's what they understood soccer to be. And then one day, you took them to a major league soccer game. I'm not sure if Boston has a team or not. New York has a team. A major league soccer. You took them to a World Cup game or Euro soccer game. And they saw with their own eyes what real soccer looked like. Minus some of the flopping. Um, follow some of that. Um, uh, they, they saw the real thing. Their eyes would be open to the fact that what they had been playing with their whole life and had defined as soccer was just a shadow of what the real game was like. And that's kind of... A a lens into what we're going to look at this morning in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. People who have grown up with the shadow. They've grown up with the model. Maybe we can kind of picture it this way. Um, uh, if, if you were a kid and you put together models and you get that box that's, that's, uh, that's in shrink wrap uh, off the shelf of a model uh, 57 Chevy, alright? And it'll have the scale on the side of it, 1 to 32 or 1 to 64 or whatever it is. And you start opening that box and you start taking apart all the plastic pieces there and you apply the cement and you make that little model of 57 Chevy. And then you apply the paint to it. You put your little figurine inside the driver's seat. You have a model, and then you go to a car show, and you see a real 57 Chevy. And there were things that kind of corresponded. uh, The general idea there of what you put together and labored on in the model. But then when you see the real thing, you hear the engine rev, and you see the shiny red paint and the chrome bumpers... The reality of the real thing makes the shadow pale in comparison. Because the purpose of the model is only to point to the real thing. It's only to give a small picture in your mind of the real thing. And that is what the Old Testament and Moses' law was intended to do. It was intended to point toward the real thing. Life found truly in Jesus and His finished work. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we have, first of all, the purpose of the old system. Now, the writer of Hebrews, just by way of review, is writing to Jewish people who have grown up under Moses' law, who have now come to Christ, claimed Christ's finished work, claimed that that Jesus fulfilled the law, 
Moses' law is finished, that it is end, ended, and now life is found through the New Testament, the Apostles' Doctrine, and Jesus Christ. The times have heated up for them. Pressure's increased. And some of them are tempted to go back to the way that they grew up. The, the, the way, the religious system that structured their lives, where the temple in Jerusalem was at the center. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, no, Jesus is better. All of that pointed to the real and true and better person, Jesus, and life in Jesus. So in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, you have the purpose of the old system explained. Now in verse 1 and 2, he's going to kind of give a summary of everything he's saying. And you might notice some phrases that you've heard all along already in the study of Hebrews in preceding chapters. He says this, Of the things which he has spoken, this is the sum. And so for, for our simple minds, he's saying, okay, here's the basics. Here's what I want you to get. If you don't get anything else, get this, is what he's saying. Here's the sum. Here's the point of it all. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So he gives a summary, saying this is all about Jesus as our high priest who has res- died, is resurrected, is ascended in heaven. He is the one that this is all about. He is the true high priest. So what this, what the uh, following verses, verses 3 through 5, are going to tell us is that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old System under Moses was a model for the real thing. For the real thing. Verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts or sacrifice, whereof it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. He's saying the purpose of high priests under the old system was they would offer uh, 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 the, the gifts that people would give to the Lord. They would offer sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. And verse 4 says, For if he, this man, Jesus, the high priest, were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Jesus was not qualified to be an Old Testament Mosaic Covenant, an Old Testament priest under Aaron's priesthood. That's, that's, um, that's because those who were in, in, uh, served in that role needed to be from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was the tribe of Judah. Uh, they needed to be in Aaron's uh, uh, line of descendants. Jesus was not. He was a descendant from David. From the tribe of Judah. He could not serve in that role. But chapter 7, uh, if you missed it, chapter 7 is all about how that didn't matter because Jesus is a priest of a higher order who supersedes all this, the order of Melchizedek. And I believe those messages are, are online if you need to catch up. Um, so he's saying that, that um, uh, Jesus wasn't qualified to be a priest in Moses' system in verse 4. But that's doesn't matter. You know why? Because verse 5 tells why. That system and those priests, Aaron's priests, they serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. They serve as a model, a, a pattern of the spiritual reality. They were just pointing to the real thing. 
as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For seeth, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. When Moses was in Mount Sinai, God gave him all the descriptions of, of how the Israelites were to live in what we call the book of Leviticus, right? But apparently, God also gave him a visible, scalable model of what the tabernacle and the, temp- uh, and the future temple would look like <clears throat> there as well. So not just, uh, uh, not just to Moses' ears, but to his eyes, God provided to him a little model, a pattern of what it would look like. And Moses uh, then had that enacted uh, there through the Levites, building the tabernacle there. But the point of it is this. The original tabernacle, and then what became the temple. Solomon built the first temple, the, the permanent station there in Jerusalem. It was an earthly, physical copy of a heavenly reality. A heavenly reality. Verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 5. The, these people, the writers writing to, had to learn that there is a reality, a spiritual reality, that their system pointed to as a model. And he's telling them, don't cling to the copy. Don't hold your little 57 Chevy model here. Go get in the driver's seat. Go get in the real thing. Don't just play foosball with the handles or, or play it on your video games here. Go play real soccer. In other words, don't cling to the copy. And you can think how hard that would be if all your life, your worship was centered around the temple in Jerusalem. You made pilgrimages there. That's where you offered your sacrifices to. Um, that's where your priests offered things on behalf of you. Um, the priests, the sacrifice, the rituals, that was where the presence of God was supposed to be represented. And the writer saying, not that that was bad, but remember its place. Remember its place. It's not that it was bad, but it's that the true temple, the real one, is better. Is better. And he's going to tell us the reasons why. Because Jesus, that serves as the copy, as the shadow, he says, the example. The old stuff. But Jesus is the real reality and presence of God and who we worship. He's our real high priest. He's our real sacrifice who brings us into fellowship with the Father. So first of all, he wants them to understand the purpose of the old system. It was like fingers. Index fingers pointing to the real, true, and better one. The coming one, the promised Messiah. But look what he says in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, But now. So something's changed when you say, but now. Right? If I say to my kids, You did this, but now. Things are going to change. Right? Um, Their antennas better perk up. Right? But now. Hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator, he is the distributor, the go-between of a better covenant. The Old Testament was based on a covenant that God made with Moses and the people where God said, if you do this, I will do this. It was what's called a bilateral covenant. There were things that the Israelites had agreed to and God promised to bless if they um, uh, fulfilled those things. But did they? No. No. In fact, the old covenant showed how much of a sinner they really were. They failed in those things. So now he's going to talk about the priority of the new. The priority of the new. 
um, in verses 6 through 13. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. And again, it's not that the old covenant was bad and evil, that the law was bad and evil. No, their hearts were bad. That's what was wrong. That's why they failed in keeping it. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But look what he says in verse 8. For finding fault with what? Them. With them. Finding fault with them, he said, you're going to need a new covenant. They needed a covenant that would not be based on externals, that would not be based on the physical, that would not work from the outside in, but one that changed the heart and worked from the inside out. And in the remaining verses, before you get to verse 13, he has the longest quotation from the Old Testament in this book of Hebrews, from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where he... Uh, uh, um, repeats God's new covenant that God would make. And here's what he wants them to understand. The old covenant was like a stream that wound its way to get to a destination, to empty into the ocean. And the new covenant is the ocean. The old covenant was like a stream that was intended to lead them to the ocean of something new and undiscovered that God had promised. A new covenant that flows with the blood of its promised one. That word better that's used in verse 6. That word better occurs more times in the book of Hebrews than the whole rest of the New Testament combined. Jesus is better than what the Mosaic Covenant promised. The Old Testament was good, but God had something better. The Old Testament was true, but it was not the whole, completely revealed truth. The Old Testament was important, but it was not the most important, because Jesus is the sum of goodness, truth, new, and better. And to go back to the Old Covenant system is to go away from where the stream of the Old Covenant was meant to take you. To Jesus in the New Covenant. Yesterday, um, at the Finnemores, they had a, a celebration for their 60th anniversary. And um, Becky bought this wonderful cake that uh, Pastor Finnemore and Mrs. Finnemore cut. And they didn't smash it all over each other's faces there. They just uh, cut it and, uh, and, and it. and it probably reminded them of the day when they stood and had their wedding cake. And if you, if you have a wedding cake, a lot of times they're in layers, right? you got the big layer at the bottom and then it gets narrower at the top. Narrower at the top. Um... <clears throat> Here's the thing about the Old Covenant. It was kind of like a wedding cake flipped upside down. More and more and more got revealed until you had the base, the foundation of Jesus there as you go up the cake. And in Jesus, God has established the New Covenant. And the spiritual promises that are in this New Covenant, look at here in a couple minutes, deal with what our biggest problem is Deal with what Israel's biggest problem is. Deal with what the Gentiles' biggest problem is. The heart. So, notice that as I read verses 8 through 12. For finding fault with them, he said, 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Not like the old covenant, not like the days where where, uh, I made a covenant with Moses, and they said, yes, we will do what you say, and they didn't. In fact, it was shortly after they were worshipping, or actually, while God was giving them the old covenant, they were worshipping a golden calf. But he says in verse 10, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. Now, where was Moses' laws written before? On stone tablets, right? I will put my laws into their mind, and I write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will already be caused to know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And here's the key. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now why could he say that? Why could he say, uh, uh, your sins and your iniquities will be forgiven? Because there will be a forever sacrifice. A once and for all sacrifice. And it will not be done by a priest who is also a sinner just like them. But it will be done by a righteous, perfectly righteous priest giving himself. So here's the point. The new covenant deals with what the biggest problem is, the heart. Would you flip over with me to Ezekiel chapter 36? It's a passage that I believe Jesus is referencing when he talks to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And says, you must be born again. You must be born new. You must have a new heart. You must be born of water and the Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I believe this is what Jesus was referencing. This new covenant. Verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Listen to this. Here's their greatest problem. Restored, fixed. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, soft, tender. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. That's what's wonderful about this new covenant in Hebrews 8. The law, the word of God is, is in their heart. It's in their heart. They have a new heart. It deals with their biggest problem. Peter says, you have the divine nature of God. God's very nature as a believer. The Holy Spirit lives within. That's what a new heart is. You've been cleansed. You have a heart that now can love and obey. You've been forgiven. God sees your record as perfect. 
because of what Jesus did. And everything the Old Covenant could not accomplish, the sacrifice, the priests, the sin, Jesus did. When you look at these verses 8 through 12, there's a pronoun that's used for God, and it's I. And what follows after it frequently is, I will do this. I will. I will. I will. You might want to underline that, uh, Bible students here. Everything the old, co- old Covenant could accomplish, Jesus did. I will do it. I will do it. And you know what that's called? When God does something we can't do, grace. This is the covenant of grace. Like we read it. Like we sang about this morning. The new covenant. God's grace. So what does this mean for us? Well, if you go over a couple more chapters to your right, I think in Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 28, you have the sum of the message of the book of Hebrews. Encapsulated in a few verses in Hebrews 12. And here's what it is. Hebrews 12.22 But you all, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Not Mount Sinai, like before. Unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. I believe he's referring to Old Testament saints. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Let me say... Pastor, I know this stuff. I know what we have in Jesus is better than the Old Testament. And what is what the Old Testament is pointing to all along. But here's the point. Here's the point. Their issue was, is Jesus going to be at the center of my life? And our issue is no different. Though we didn't grow up in Judaism. You're probably not tempted to go back to Judaism and obeying Moses' law in order to find favor with God. But what things are you tempted to go back to? Where are you tempted to find your joy and peace and satisfaction? If it's not the new covenant of Jesus that gives you a new and living way... A new and way that is alive, Hebrews 10 says later on. Then you're no different. Because you see, our hearts are still the same. Their problem was they wanted to go back to something. Basically, they wanted to pump the ocean back into the stream. They wanted to pump the ocean of the new covenant of God's grace and try to mix it back in Moses' law in the stream. But the whole purpose of the stream was to lead to the ocean. And so the stream empties out into the ocean, not so the ocean goes back into the stream. And we can do the same things, can't we? We can build our identities on things that are not in Jesus Christ alone. 
How do we do that? What do we do to do that? Americans do it in a lot of different ways, don't we? But people in Taiwan do it in their own culture's ways, don't we? We might do it by building our identity and people approval. We might do it by building our identity and the fact that we think we're a pretty good person. We might do it, ironically, by building our identity on things that happened to us in the past. But the Bible says, this new and living way, our identity has to be based and lived in Jesus. And that's why Jesus will say, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And that's why Jesus will say, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Cast off the Moses law. Cast off your wrong identities. Cast off the lies of the world that you're believing for your fulfillment and satisfaction. Maybe it's a certain lifestyle you think you need to provide for or your family needs to have or you need to have in order to be fulfilled. If any man will come after me, will follow me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why can Jesus say that? Because he wants to make life miserable and hard for you? No. Because life in Jesus is better than any of that. We had a man here a couple weeks, Pastor Timothy, who in Myanmar and ministers to those people in Myanmar have um, uh, very essentials. Very essentials. Eat rice and sometimes only rice every day. But understand that life in Jesus is better than any of those earthly items that so many times we deceive ourselves in thinking will make us happy. Or those promotions. Or whatever it is on your list. Think in your mind, if I only had this, my life would be perfect. Well, that's not true. Because the songwriter says, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. And so in the close of this chapter 8, the author says this. In that he saith a new covenant. Because God said in Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with you. On the basis of that, and it follows logically, he hath made the first old. And there's nothing wrong with something old if it's supposed to continue and endure, right? But that's not true of the old covenant. Because look at that last line. That which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Another way that can be translated is the old covenant was made obsolete. Obsolete. What in your life do you need to recognize as old and obsolete compared to Jesus? I doubt in our crowd and audience that it's going to be Moses' law. Because that might not be the battle you're, you're facing. But if you're human... There's something in your life that you need to say is old and obsolete and needs to be gone. And Jesus needs to be clung to. Jesus needs to be 
Not merely prominent in my life, but Jesus needs to have the preeminence in my life. Let's pray.